This is the Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. Hey, everybody. Max Boltman here for another episode of the Athletic Hockey Show's Prospect Series. We have a full house today. Corey Prodman, Scott Wheeler of The Athletic, Chris Peters of Flow Hockey. It's a full round table that of The Athletic applied to both of you, Corey. I see you giving me that look. You have an affiliation here with us. The point is we got a full house and we got a full show. We've got the uh, preliminary rosters for the U.S. and Canada, the, the pools that will be narrowly trimmed down to make the World Junior rosters. We're going to start there uh, and go in depth. And, and obviously, we got to start with Team Canada. Uh, Team Canada... Every year, of course, they, they struggle with, you know, the player pool that they have and who are they actually going to have the chance to bring. And we factor that in very early when we go through this process and these discussions. But even at the end of the summer, we thought there was at least a chance they would get one of Zach Benson, Kevin Korchinski. I think we felt pretty good about them getting Matt Poitra. Scott, they have none of them available to them here. Yeah, that's tough. And and when you look at the this roster from top to bottom, it does feel thinner than we're used to for Canada, especially side by side what will and we'll get into it. But really, really strong age groups for Sweden and USA. Uh, I was on the phone with a couple of coaches over in Sweden for a story I'm working on this morning, and they said they, they think this is the best Swedish roster that they've had in five to 10 years kind of thing. So uh, and certainly I know USA hockey feels the same way about their group. So that side by side, the fact that, yeah, Canada's going to be hurt more than they usually are. And they're always uh, victims a little bit just because of the way that junior hockey works. They tend to be victims of losing more guys to the NHL and AHL, whereas a lot of the college kids get to stay a little bit longer and they're made available and all of that. Um, so that always plays a little bit of a role in this tournament. And this year it's pronounced, especially, I mean, you mentioned Quatra. I think everybody knew that he was a very good player. He was a well-liked prospect for sort of the pro quality, even by NHL Central Scouting, if you go back to his draft year. Uh, but he wasn't expected to become a top nine staple for, for a very good Boston Bruins team, right? So uh, it hurts. It's it's going to hurt on top of Fantilli and Connor Bedard and the guys that you would typically expect them not to have. There's also a couple of guys that they're still waiting on. And my understanding is they're still hopeful that they may at some point, even if it's like closer to the Christmas Eve deadline, that they may at some point get one of Benson or, or Plotra kind of thing, uh, even if they're not participating in camp. So, Corey, when you look at this team, then without those guys, though, like what is what does Canada have here to work with? It's still very good players. And I, I know you and Scott did your projections and we're still looking at a potential 2024 number one overall pick and Macklin Celebrini on this roster. I'm still looking at, you know, guys who have gone very high in the draft, Nate Danielson, Braden Yeager, Matt Savoy. What does Canada still have to work with? How do you think it all stacks up? Yeah. And to echo uh, Scott's point, you know, they have a little bit of time to decide in NHL players. Uh, they may not go to camp, but they may just, you know, Buffalo may decide with Benson, for example, that as they get closer to when the tournament actually starts, then maybe they loan him out. Uh, but in terms of what they do have, they've lost a lot of forwards uh, to the NHL. They've really lost lost only one defenseman to the NHL and Kevin Korczynski. Otherwise, this blue line group is mostly the top names uh, in this age group. And this age group actually has never been Canada's strongest age group historically. Uh, but you they still get Denton Matejchuk, a high first round pick. Tristan Luneau has played NHL games with Anaheim. He was the Q Defenseman of the Year last season. Maverick Lamoureux looks like a really good defense prospect, first round pick by Arizona. Is having a very nice year uh, uh, in in Drummondville. 
and, and we'll see how the rest of their blue line plays out in camp. But for the most part, their blue line, I think, is quite strong. I think is clearly the best blue line in this tournament. And, and they're going to need it because uh, while they have a good forward group, uh, their goaltending is going to be a question until it's not proven a question at this tournament. Okay, so so you bring up the goalies. I mean, how, how do you see it shaking out? I know you and Scott kind of have settled on Mathis Rousseau as the kind of guy in both your projections. How confident are you there? Not really. I think a lot of what's going to happen with the goalies is going to come down to the games against U Sports uh, in terms of who makes the team, what the what the goalie depth chart order is going to look like. I mean, this is a bunch of goalies with other than Scott Ratzlaff, who played well at the Holinka, was not really having a good year at all in the WHL. This is a group of goalies with next to no international experience. Uh, so th- there's a lot to be proven here s- still in terms of who's going to emerge as the guy among this group. Russo is a very uh, talented junior goalie, but he is 5'10", 5'11". So though there are concerns around his size. Um, you know, you have... You know, in Rats left, Samuel St. Hilaire, you have some guys who uh, have at least chances, I think, to be the number one guy just because I think, I don't think Rousseau uh, has earned it by any stretch of the imagination. And and if you'd asked people around the CHL this summer, they probably would have given you Dom DiVincentis as, as the presumptive guy just off of the season that he had a year ago, um, a year ago in North Bay, bringing that team sort of deep into the playoffs and the top of the OHL standings and all of that. And he of the four goalies who are coming to camp has actually had the worst season. So I think even hockey Canada is sort of unsure about what direction this is going to go. Ratzlaff has been a little bit better of late. I think he had a shutout a couple of weekends and his weekends ago and his numbers have bounced back. I think he's back over 900 kind of thing. Uh, but Russo is the one with the best numbers of the bunch. And he plays on a Halifax team that just rolls everybody in that league. And this is a really, really weak year for the Q. So it's going to be, it's going to be spicy. And and you look across, you look across the aisle, you've got Trey Augustine, Jacob Fowler, Hugo Havilid for the Swedes, proven players, proven goaltenders who've been on big stages before. So it definitely seems like they're a, a sort of a, a step behind in that regard. Michael Harabal for the Czechs, Adam Gay on with, uh, on Slovakia. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. So I think it's going to come down to the U sports games, the pre-tournament games. I think that there's going to be, be uh, a lot to be determined in terms of Canada's goaltending. Obviously, I think when people watch this tournament, you know, last year was so much of it was about Bedard and the amazing things he was doing, especially from a draft perspective, Chris. Macklin Celebrini is, you know, especially with some of the absences that we've talked about for Canada, uh, seems like there could be some real spotlight for him. What, what is a fair expectation? For Macklin Celebrini here, and, and how does he fit in with Team Canada in your eyes? Yeah, you know it's going to be really interesting to see if they if they put him down the middle or if he's going to end up being on the wing and, and playing. I, I think you know to me you have to have him in your top six. I think of the players that they've they've brought in, um, you know, to me, even at 17 years old, Macklin Celebrini is one of the best players on that team. Um, and I, I you know I think obviously when you when you lose certain players. That's part of it, where he actually comes in and he, he he will improve them. You look at everything he's done as a younger player, wherever he has been, whether it's the USHL last year, whether it was the under-18 World Championship where he set a Canadian scoring record, or whether it was at um, this season at Boston University where he's been among the top freshmen that we've seen in terms of points per game, that's pretty impressive. And so I think we underestimate him at our own risk. We saw what Connor Bedard did last year. I'm not saying Celebrini is Connor Bedard, but I think given the opportunity, given the ice time, 
Um, and if they play him, you know, with like, you know, players that can, that can kind of play at his level, um, then I think that he is going to have a, a leading role for this team or can have a leading role for this team. Um, and I think he's proven that he deserves a leading role for this team. We, we see, you know, obviously everyone would love to see the first overall pick in each draft do what Bedard did. We've also seen guys like Adam Fantilli and, and even other top picks. Uh, Quinton Byfield had a quieter tournament. Like where on that kind of spectrum, Corey, do you think the expectations for, for Celebrini's kind of output should be? Well, I think what's different between the teams that Fantilli and Byfield were on and Celebrini's team is they need him. They need him to play an important role, you know, be a top six four, like Chris said. So I think he's going to be given an opportunity, you know, with the minutes and the power play time to help this team to put up points, to get regular, even strength shifts. Because you really look around this Canadian forward group, and it's a lot of very talented forwards, a lot of first round picks, high first round picks. But if you really see how this Canadian group is coming together, you know, the elite scorers on this team are guys like Jagger Furkis or, or, Jordan Dumais, who are smaller wingers, who are not elite skaters. You have a guy like Matt Savoy, who is a much better skater, but um, is also on the smaller side. You know, they're the centers, uh, you know, guys like Connor Geeky, Nate Danielson, Braden Yeager, great players. I wouldn't call any of those guys game breakers by any means. So they need somebody like Celebrity who has unique traits, who has elite offensive traits to really stand out in this tournament. So while I don't think he's going to have the kind of tournament Connor Bedard did, Nobody had a tournament that Conor Bedard did until Conor Bedard was there. So I don't think it's fair to expect that. Uh, I do, you know, I think he will provide a bigger impact for them than Anna Fantilli did last year. That couldn't buy a field, but maybe somewhere behind, you know, he's not going to be challenging. I don't think for the MVP of the tournament, like say how Alexi Lafreniere did when he he was on this team. Yeah, that was, that was actually going to be my question. Can he have a, can he have a lot? We we forget how good Lafreniere was with how he is in the NHL right now, with how good he was at the World Juniors. And I was that was the guy where I was like, maybe, maybe in that. But yeah, it'd be really hard to 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 match that given how nearly uh, a how full year younger than him. Too. Yeah, I was gonna say exactly. The yeah, the youth there. the youth factor is is no small thing. Um, but yeah, but you know, to this point, we've seen Celebrini just overachieve time after time. So uh, nothing would surprise me from him at this point. Scott, we, we've talked a lot about the names that Canada won't have maybe for reasons beyond their control, guys that we think the NHL teams are going to hang on to here. There was one name on this blue line, though, that I think few of us expected to see, uh, who Owen Pickering not invited for Team Canada. Yeah, that was the only one that sort of jumped out at me. I know there was a lot of hoopla online about Riley Height, who's leading the WHL in scoring and a prolific offensive player at the junior level. But Height, I mean, we were all there for for U18 Worlds. Height wasn't particularly impressive. He joined that team late. And when you don't really star at U18 Worlds, it's very hard to make Team Canada as an 18-year-old. So I think it was always going to just be a, a tall task for Height after the way he played in Switzerland. Different different scenario with a 19-year-old six foot four defenseman who can really skate, right? And and in Pickering's case, you've got, I mean, for, for God's sake, he's he's Denton Matejchuk's cousin. He there, there's all sorts of ties to Hockey Canada. Part of the reason he was a first round draft pick was because of how well he played for Hockey Canada internationally that season. Um, so all of that was was sort of a I thought would have been a, a really strong factor. But then you talk to people and he wasn't in Buffalo when we were there for the for the rookie tournament to start the season because he was banged up early on this year and stayed home and sort of did some rehab in Pittsburgh. He wasn't very good in his jump to the AHL at the end of last season and really struggled 
in the AHL. Uh, despite his size, he's not a very physical player. He's not a very big, strong kid. He's a pretty skinny kid if you run into him around the rink. Uh, and he just hasn't had a phenomenal junior season. Like He's been good, and he's the captain of that team, and he plays big minutes, but it's not like he just grabbed a hold of it either. So I think ultimately they just felt that some of their other 19-year-olds that they were bringing, the Jorian Donovans, the, the Michael Buchingers, had just played better and had better seasons. And they felt like between what they've got in the length of Maverick Lamaru and the experience of Tristan Luno, they probably felt like on that right side, like they were in a pretty good spot without him. All right, let's take a quick pause right there and we'll be right back and talk about Team USA. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, we're back. Talking the United States of America. And their team, as we've talked about really since the summer, guys, it, it's the story starts with an incredibly deep forward group. So deep a forward group, in fact, that they cut a two-time returner, which you very rarely see, Charlie Stramel. And it's still deep, even with the injury, guys, to Rucker McGrory, that while, you know, I, I guess we don't know the specifics, but he's out right now. And, and Chris, I guess if I asked you to take a look at this, you know, does it seem realistic for Rucker McGrory to play? Where, where is this at? You know, I, I would say that I would I would be fairly surprised if he ends up playing. Um, it sounds like the you know the injury that he sustained is something that would have an undetermined timeline, something that would not necessarily you couldn't really put you know three weeks, four weeks, you you know anything like that on it. It's just something that is going to require time. Um, he sustained that injury a couple weeks ago. Um, so you know he's been out since then. He was hospitalized as well, which adds another element. The thing about Rucker McGordy is he's such an important piece of this age group. Um, he has been with these guys at so many, you know, this, this age group has also played in the youth Olympics. They lost the youth Olympics to Russia. They have lost the under 18 worlds. Some of them as underagers twice. Uh, they lost last year, you know, got bronze, but lost in the semifinal last year. So this age group um, is feeling like, Hey, this is our last chance to do it. And McGordy's one of their leaders. And, and I think he's just as important off the ice as he is on it. And he is important on it because he plays hard. And, the, and that's the other thing is, with an injury, can he play the style that makes him effective? Um, if they, let's say, so let's put it this way. If he can get on the, if he can't get on the plane to go to Sweden, he's obviously not going to be on the team. If he can get on the plane, that buys them essentially 10 more days to find out. And I think that they will give Rucker McGordy every single opportunity to make this team if he's healthy enough to do so. If he can't, it's really unfortunate, but I think he's the kind of guy they, they, they would just love to have around um, as an option. But unfortunately, you know, I, I, I personally would be surprised, but knowing Rucker McGordy's personality, knowing how much they think of him, um, I just think that they'll give him every opportunity to, to be there with them. What door does that open, Corey? In the in the world where McGrody doesn't play, who stands to you know? It's not an easy role to fill, as Chris was just describing. Right, and I don't think they have that player. I don't think right. there is that player waiting in the wings to fill that high end compete power game with size and scoring 
But I think for me, when I was trying to see how this roster would come together, I think you kind of presumed that Cutter Goche, Jimmy Snuggerud, Will Smith, Ryan Leonard, they were all in. Gavin Brindley was going to be in. Frank Nazar has played very well. I think he's played his way into a solid position. I think there were some, some questions on the wing. Uh, how would that play out? And, you know, I think you looked at Gabe Perot and Isaac Howard as two guys who I think were fighting for one of those top nine wing spots. And as the season has progressed, I think the answer to that question became Perot. That Perot, if it was between the two of them, I think Perot was going to win that spot. Now with Mono McGrordy, it might be now you might have both of them in there. Whereas coming into camp, I think there was a question on which one of those two would they be leaning on in that scoring role. And one of the guys that you didn't even mention there is James Hagens. It's not one of the wingers, but Scott, I mean, this is a prospect that we're very excited about for 2025, obviously. Can he make an impact? You know, he's, I don't know if he's technically a double underage because of the birth date, but he's a young player at this event. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, we're talking about the presumptive number one pick for 2025 at this point, again, still early, but that's the kind of talent. That's the kind of class of player that you're discussing. He can certainly skate and play make with the best of these, of this age group in front of him. Um, he, he played well enough at, up a year last year in new 18 worlds. I believe he had five points in seven games and was noticeable on the puck in terms of just making plays and sort of playing his game. And if they're going to play cutter Gauthier at the wing, which they often have internationally, even though he's played sent a, a good deal of center in college, then suddenly outside of Will Smith, there's probably an opening there uh, for James Haggins to step in and potentially even play with Cutter Gauthier and Jimmy Snuggerud, who were obviously line mates of Logan Cooley's at the program. So there's there's an opportunity for James not just to make this team, but to be a guy, to be on the first power play or second power play, and to be one of their top six centers and play in a scoring role and get out there and let the skating and the, the natural instinct that he has offensively sort of take over and dictate. Uh, it, it, it's going to be a, a a conversation and a talking point for sure. If he falters, do you see a player like a Frank Nazar or an Oliver Moore maybe pop up at some point in the round robin and sort of fill that void for a game or two if he's struggling? Uh, so it's going to be something worth following. A, a lot of eyes are going to be on him in those pre sort of pre-tournament games and into uh, if he makes it out of camp, which I think we assume he will uh, in pre-tournament and then into those first couple of games of the round robin. Can can he hang? And and I think all indications are that he'll be just fine with the talent and the skating and just the way that he thinks the game out there. But it's it's going to be a, a major storyline for this tournament. And obviously, he'll be eligible to come back again next year and sort of take on an even greater role. I think Scott's point about if uh, Hagen's falters is, a, is an important one uh, because there isn't a ton of precedent for a draft minus one stepping in to a Team USA at the U-20 level and being a significant contributor. You know, we're talking about Hagen's maybe being the first or second line center on this team. Jack Hughes didn't even make the World Junior team as a draft minus one. Austin Matthews and Jack Eichel were on their draft minus one World Junior teams, and they did you know get their points. Uh, but I wouldn't have called them a top player on those teams. Uh, so I think with Hagen's, you know, if we're going to play him in a top six role, he needs to be properly sheltered, and there needs to be realistic expectations that if things don't go well, uh, you need to find somebody else who can go up there and play those minutes. I will say, though, and Chris, you made this point in, in your story on Flow Hockey about the, the camp roster. Hagens was one of the better players at the selection camp. Like It is mm-hmm. a different level when the tournament begins and it's not inter-squad, but he was really, really good this summer. And 
I imagine yeah. he's going to continue to trend up because that's generally how it goes at this age. Yeah, absolutely. I th- I think and and that that summer camp is is really very important because the when you play against the Sweden and 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 Finland, then also even in the inner squad games, continually standing out. I mean, I thought there were times where James Higgins looked like the number one center in that camp. Um, and there were times where, you know, they, they had Goche at center, they had, they had Will Smith at center, but you can make a case that Higgins was. And just to the point of how rare this is for Team USA specifically, there are 11 players in the history of this tournament that have played in their draft minus one season. Um, almost all of them are forwards. Uh, it, you know, Charlie Stramel, who did not make the team this year, was the last one to do it in the Summer World Juniors. But yeah, Austin Matthews, Jack Eichel, Phil Kessel, Jordan Schrader, Brian Leach were among the, the 11 that played so it just does not happen very often and i do think like the the pre-tournament games are critical for usa they won't play exhibitions at home and so they have to really use those games to make those final roster decisions and one of those key things they will play canada in one of those games and getting james Hagens in that environment and finding out what you know what he's made of in that kind of environment is really going to be the deciding factor of where he's going to play but I firmly believe that he has an opportunity to be a top a top six center on this roster. I remember in the in the summer tournament where you had uh, after the uh, 2019 draft, you had Alex Turcott play very well in that summer camp. Cole Caulfield was outstanding. Cam York played well, and then into the pre tournament was the same thing. And then the real game started, and all of a sudden, uh, Scott Sandlin started going towards the older players. Yep. So it, it's it's definitely a we'll see when it comes to a draft minus one. One more quick thought on the forwards. Just we we t- talked about in the open court. Were you surprised at the decision to not keep Stream? Obviously, it's been a quieter year for him, but it is a double returner and, and a guy who has quite a significant dimension that not many guys at this tournament have with the physicality. Yeah, obviously, when you are, I I actually can't remember the last time I've seen this. I've seen returning members of teams get cut. I've never seen a two-time returning member of a team get cut. So that's a new one to me. And if anybody. I uh, can remember a precedent of that. Feel free to send that one yeah. my way. Uh, it's it's, uh, but he hasn't played well this year. He's been injured too this season. But even when he's, when he's been healthy, he's been playing towards the bottom of Wisconsin's lineup and hasn't really made a significant difference. I think his one goal was against Alaska. Um, so it's been a tough year for him. And so I, I don't mind. You know, the games have to matter. Uh, Florida State University, I man, I think so, but uh, <laughs> they definitely uh, do. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, I think you know his, his performance has played his way out of there. But when I see it, the guys they brought instead for him, which was his teammates in Quinn Finley and William Whitelaw, uh, those surprised me a little bit. Uh, I, I'm not sure what they think those two particularly are going to add to this team especially someone like white law who is an 05 904 um you know small offensive minded forward uh who isn't really putting up big numbers uh this year i thought bringing those two instead of cruz lucius who among all those wisconsin forwards has the most goals most points playing the most minutes on the first power play um instead of any of those guys that we mentioned i thought that was an interesting decision by usa is it possible that they they view those guys and, and you mentioned kind of the 05 factor for white laws like they, they think that there's a good chance he's in this next year and they just want to get him more and more reps with the with the team i don't know maybe yeah it's, po- it's <laughs> just possible. a theory and, and to Corey's point you know i i you know if you 
usually with guys that are surprises, you'll say, oh, well, at least they'll kill penalties. Not with either of those two. So I don't really know, you know, what's going to happen there. But, you know, I think the other thing that's important to note is is Danny Nelson has been a number one center for Notre Dame this year. And he's probably really good player for them. Really good player. He's he's got the size factor. Um, I think, you know, Stramel traditionally had been the better penalty killer. He was a penalty killer for last year's team. But I think that, you know, Danny Nelson's emergence has helped. You have uh, Oliver Moore, who could potentially kill penalties. I think Gavin Brindley is probably going to be their number one penalty killing forward. So, you know, they they have options. And I think, you know, I, I give I give the staff credit because they said, well, you know, this is going to we're, we're going to lose some size here with that. But when a player's not going and, and really Stramel is not, you have to make that decision. I think the closest thing that comes to this is, is, is you know, like Chad Chris played in this tournament as an underager and then play in the subsequent two world juniors after that. Um, that's like the only thing I can think of that that is remotely close. And I thought with the familiarity and and that size physicality factor that they would still at least get him in the camp and see if maybe in that environment he thrived. But really, even in the summer, he wasn't as effective. Um, so very surprised, you know, surprising that the season has gone the way that it has for him. And you hope that, you know, the pressure doesn't continue to build with this. And, and I'm sure it will, especially from the he's a Minnesota kid drafted by the Minnesota Wild. You know, so this is going to be a thing that he's going to have to deal with throughout the rest of the season. Yeah. Gav, Gavin Hayes and Kerry Terrence could PK for this team too. For sure they can. For sure they can. And, yeah. That's and with Danny, Leonard. Yeah. With, yeah. And with yep. Danny, Danny, you've got positional versatility too that you they for may sure. not have felt they had in stream where Danny played center and wing at the program. Yep. yep. All right. On to the blue line here, which has been, you know, at least in the summer, certainly it was the big question around this team. Scott, do you feel any better about this USA blue line today than you might have in the middle of August? I think you have to feel pretty good about what Zeev Bouyam is going to potentially provide this team. He's the one guy who has kind of stepped up. And Corey and I have talked about this a little bit in the past. I'm not convinced he's even going to be a low minutes guy for this team. Like they may need a player like him to be, to be good, like to be an important piece of this team, right? They need, they need one more guy. You've got Lane Hudson, you've got Ryan Chesley, you've got Seamus Casey. I think in a gold medal elimination game, we all expect that those three players will be out there virtually every other shift. Uh, uh, you'll have one of those three players on the ice at all times, but they ideally they need a fourth guy. So can you get that out of Drew Fortescue or Zeev Boyum? I, th- I think you have to hope that Zeev uh, can step in and, and potentially be that kind of a guy for this team, but it's not going to be the strength of this team, especially, I mean, Corey mentioned earlier uh, in our discussion about Canada, mentioned the strength of Canada's blue line. I think that Swedish blue line is as good a blue line as that team has maybe ever sent to this tournament. They've got seven legitimate, legitimate players at this level and and four or five guys who could sort of play their way into the all-star conversation. So um, that's, if anything, that's where this USA team is going to be suspect. And it's not just going to, there isn't just some magical cure like Zeev or Drew or Sam Renzel or it doesn't matter, Eric Polkamp, these aren't guys who are going to, even if they play to their capabilities, aren't guys who are going to rise to the level of some of the players on that Canadian and, and Swedish blue line. So it, it may just be by committee and maybe they're going to be on offense. I think there's a real chance they're on <laughs> offense all tournament and it's it doesn't matter as much, right? And they've got two excellent, for sure, two excellent goalies. So uh, they're, they're, they're going to need Lane and Seamus to really make plays and they're going to need Ryan to play some tough minutes. And you you got to hope that you can get a fourth guy, I think is the outcome there. You know, we mentioned said Boyan before. Um, I think, you know, 
he can't understate just how good he's been this season. He's playing a massive role on one of the best teams in the country. And as a defenseman, uh, you know, we've been, we talked earlier in this podcast about how good Macklin Celebrini has been this year at BU and how we expect him to play a big role on Team Canada. Uh, Boyum's only got four fewer points this year than Macklin Celebrini does in college. Uh, and so, I, you know, I think Boyum's going to be a very good player for them at this level. And I think their blue line, the dynamism has shifted a little bit because I think Renzel has been much better in college this season than I expected him to be. Obviously, Casey's been very good. Hudson's been very good. So I don't think it's going to be the elite blue line. I don't think it's a blue line that is problematic. Were you surprised, Scott, that no Hunter Brustevitz here? A little bit. I, I know in, I was uh, messaging Corey. I was at a game about two days before they announced their camp roster and the, the Kitchener Rangers brass were there and we were chatting and and they were already sort of not sure of it, but but worried and uh, just about about his invite. So that was kind of a, a bit of a sort of tip off, if you will. Uh, but he, he did everything he could, like you can't play any better at that level. I had another OHL coach, not associated with the Kitchener Rangers who texted me right away after the roster came out that he was like flabbergasted that, that Hunter just in the games that they'd played against him and how good he'd been, how dominant he's been at that level that he wasn't invited. Uh, it's, it's not uh, an equivalent situation to what's, what happened with them leaving a player like Quinton Musty off the roster as well, because of the late birthday, this was the end of his world junior dream, right? Like this was his only opportunity. He's yeah. not going to be eligible to play for them next year in a way that a player like Musty will be. So uh, it, it, I'm sure it was heartbreaking for him. Just, I mean, he's, he's having a pretty, not historic, but uh, an upper echelon statistical season in, in terms of the last 20 years, certainly in Lane Hudson and Seamus Casey, we know that they already have the power play quarterbacks. Those guys are going to run, uh, if not, if they're not on the same unit, they'll run separate units and and that's going to be their job. So maybe they felt that Hunter just didn't provide enough defensively in terms of what he looks like at, at, at the international level. Um, but he's not the player he was when he sort of got injured on this, on the second day of, of his time at the program and then played behind Chesley and Hudson and Casey on that team. He's, he's done some catching up since then. And he looks like a legitimate NHL prospect. Uh, and and again, if, if it's a meritocracy, I would have at least liked to have seen him in theory get an invite just because it does send, certainly it's, I think it sends a bit of a message that you you probably couldn't have asked him to start his season any better than he did. So there's not much more in terms of the message to him. There's not much more he could have done. Yeah. You know what? And one thing about that, Scott, too, I agree. I like, I, I personally would have liked to have seen him in camp, but I think, I think what it came down to, this was a bad year to be an excellent offensive defenseman, I guess, Yeah, you know, because, you know, like that, that was the thing where, you know, to Corey's point where, where I think the people that don't understand why he didn't make it also don't understand how good Lane Hudson, Ryan, uh, uh Z Bulliam and, uh, Seamus Casey are, um, when you, but we look at it and we say, well, Aaron Manettian did get an invite as a right shot defenseman. And it's like, where does that fit versus what Hunter has done? And and he's another guy that's eligible for next year. Maybe to, to Max's earlier point, you're trying to get some of those O fives in because you need to see him. My only concern about this blue line, I, like I think they're going to have the puck a lot. This is going to be a puck possession team. They're going to do you know, a lot of things offensively. They're going to be good on the power play, but there is a bit of a lack of balance. Like Sam Renzel is not an elite defender. Uh, Drew Fortescue and and Ryan Chesley, while good defensively, I would not call either of them elite defenders. You know, so I, I think that that's that's going to be interesting 
to see, you know, if they don't have the puck a lot, how that's going to, how that's going to manifest itself in the defensive zone. Um, But I do think the way that this team is structured with how good the forwards are and how good the, this defense is in terms of mobility, which is another thing I wonder with Brustevich. I think he's a, I think his skating is fine, but his North South speed is not, he's not, he's not quick. He doesn't play quick. That's kind of my, my assessment of him. Um, I think the other guys do. Um, but you know, that's going to be kind of something that we have to wait and see with this team, but the balance issues of, you know, who's going to be the stopper, which defensemen are going to kill penalties. You know, I mean, Ryan Chesley and, you know, I'm sure Seamus Casey will probably be involved in that as well. Um, but you know, yeah, it's just, it's going to be very interesting to see how they structure that defensive group, uh, in terms of minutes and matchups. And that tells you that they're going to need a good goalie. And it seems like they may have two. But I noticed in the projections, uh, Scott and Corey, you you went different directions on this. Uh, Chris, I actually don't remember which way you fell on this. So let's hold on you. I'm going to ask Scott and Corey to make the cases for uh, Trey Augustine and Jacob Fowler, respectively. And then we'll come to you for kind of a tiebreaker verdict on on behalf of the show here, I guess. Scott, do you want to lead us off with uh, with the case for Trey Augustine? Yeah, I mean, I... They've both been outstanding. They're both playing virtually every game. I believe Trey's backup has started one game. Trey has started all but one game at, at Michigan State. I think Jacob's played every He started every game. Every uh, game, yep. So, I mean, they're both playing every game. They're both playing back-to-backs. They're both doing it as true freshmen. That, that's, that in and of itself is a credit to the quality that both are. They're both legitimate NHL goalie prospects. They're both sort of upper echelon guys at their position uh, worldwide, really, at this point. Uh, but, I mean, Trey's the, Trey's the returnee. That's ultimately the why I landed there. He's been the starter, not just uh, briefly at last year's World Juniors when he sort of grabbed the job, but at two, uh, if, we, if everybody remembers, two uh, U18 Worlds, right? And was called up as a 17-year-old to start for that team in Germany as well. So uh, that's that, I think, uh, will at least mean that he gets every opportunity to be the guy. He'll probably be the starter for the first game. But I think this is a situation with both players, especially with how well Jacobs played. And Jacobs obviously played for USHL title and played in big games and on big stages himself. Uh, I, I think you're, you're going to see some kind of a rotation through the pre-tournament and right into to round robin. And their real decision will be in the quarterfinal. Corey, what do you think on Fowler? Yeah, I think I agree with Scott that I think you have to give Augustine the first game out of deference to everything he's done uh, for USA Hockey and that he's had a nice year, not a great year, but a nice year uh, at Michigan State. I think there's a lot of similarity to the two players and how they play. I think both of their hockey sense are are excellent. Um, I think Fowler's a little bit more athletic um, personally in terms of how maybe not his body frame, but in terms of his his side-to-side quickness. That's kind of why I think the player is going to be slightly more impactful and just frankly he's had a better season and uh i actually may be biased in that i saw them play head to head uh when michigan when michigan state played boston college and i thought fowler was much better um then just generally i think he's shown at the collegiate level he's could be more impactful in steel games uh so and and i just think that's uh, going to be an important variable when it comes down to deciding who do you want in the hardest games because uh, there's only going to be a couple of them from Team USA. And yeah, I think you got to look at, the, at all the evidence that they've seen, of course, over their careers, but especially this season. And I think this season, Fowler, I think, has shown by a slim margin. I think, frankly, as pro prospects, they grade out similarly. And as goalie talents, they're pretty similar. Uh, but I would lean Fowler for those reasons. Chris, you want to be our tiebreaker? 
I'll be, I'll break this tie um, by saying that we won't know the number one goalie until the quarterfinal. Um, yeah, no, here's what, here, but here's, here's the situation. I mean, I look back to the last time, uh, not the last time, but one of the times the U S won a gold medal, um, the Tyler Parsons, Joseph wall tandem, which is hilarious because Jake Ottinger was the third goalie on that team. <laughs> um, but you had Tyler Parsons and J- Joseph wall playing head to head. They played, you know, split the games, and eventually they they ultimately went with Parsons, even though Wall played exceptionally well in that tournament as well. Go with Parsons. Parsons gives, you know, basically wins them the tournament with two incredible shootout performances uh, in addition to Troy Terry. And it, it was funny. I actually asked the players this summer what your favorite World Junior memory is. Both goalies said the Tyler Parsons shootout, while most of the forwards said the Troy Terry shootout. Um, so that was uh, that was interesting. But to Corey's point, and and Here's the thing. I mean, so David Lassonde is the goalie coach. I think they're going to lean on him for for a lot of the decision process here um, with with Team USA. Uh, and he's been with Augustine the longest, uh, so he knows as, about as well as anybody how 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 well he can play. That being said, I do think that there is a belief that Jacob Fowler, that they, that they're going to go into this tournament. And they're going to say who's going, and they are they're going to throw history out the window, and they're going to basically go with whichever of these two guys is playing. Keep in mind, Augustine still has another year of eligibility. This is it for Fowler. That's not going to be part of the decision process, but it is part of you know the story of this, of this tandem. So it's going to come down to who's playing the best, and I think we'll see both of them play significant minutes in both pre-tournament games. Um, I think that you know the, the likelihood is, I, I would also expect Jacob Fowler to play the most difficult of the preliminary round games. Like he might get the start against Slovakia, for instance, where, where that allows them to see him in that environment because they've already seen Trey Augustine do it. Now you have to see if, if Fowler can do it. And and if those guys can pass those tests. So my lean at this point, if we're just going based on this season and, 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 and not thinking about just the history of the international history of Augustine who had, one of the great performances in a gold medal game at last year's under 18 world championship. I mean, USA had no business winning that game without him. Um, I, you know, I do think that Fowler has a, has a legitimate chance to be the number one here. Um, and the way that he's played this year, I think he's even, he's, he's advancing. He's, he is progressing. So I like him. I'm going to go Fowler. All right. Wow. That was, that was a very dramatic unveil there. That's what we pay him for. You're welcome. what it's all about uh we're taking a break right here we're gonna come right back and we're gonna talk about the draft before we wrap things up all right we are back and we are talking about what sounds like it might just be Corey, the last nhl draft as we know it in las vegas potentially it sounds like likely at this point at the sphere but the, the headline there is really more this could be the last nhl draft where the entire league is in one place Yes. And, uh, you know, we will discuss the, the pros and cons of that decision and, and what that means for the league going forward. Uh, but as someone who's been to a lot of these uh, drafts with with the whole uh, league in one place with all with with the 30 team tables that have now become 32 team tables um, and the whole atmosphere that comes with it. Um, it is sad, you know, just in, in any time you have change it's sad whether it's good or bad change i i can i have so many good memories of going to these nhl drafts and and what this unique structure um has brought to the league from an experience standpoint 
in that, you know, other than the draft, we don't really have uh, an equivalent in the NHL calendar where the whole league does come together. You know, like, like how baseball has the winter meetings, for example, or how NBA has summer league. This was the big hockey conference. You know, this was not just about the actual event, which is the draft, which obviously I have a lot of interest in. Uh, it's about what happens when you go around the draft. It's when, you know, frankly, the NHL takes over a city for a week. And you, you know, whether you're in the airport or at a at Tim Hortons or you're, you know, just walking around the streets, uh, you see NHL stars, NHL managers, ex-Hall of Famers. And especially when you walk out at night, you sometimes see them in compromising positions. <laughs> and it's and it's you know great memories. And um uh, it's going to be sad to to close that door because I you know, when I'm going around to various tournaments and events and junior and college games, you're running into a lot of the same people. But the draft, I think, was really an opportunity for the entire league at all various levels of, of positions with, within teams and media agents uh, to all come together. And it was really kind of a, a big uh, hockey conference reunion, whatever you want to call it, every year. Um, and it's going to be very sad that we're not going to get that. And I hope that the NHL find some other way to create the kind of environment going forward, whether it's maybe blowing up the NHL combine to something bigger. You know, there had been rumors, for example, the NHL combine blending with the U18 worlds. Maybe that does it. Maybe they need to start a summer league or some sort of major rookie showcase in September or something that creates that kind of environment. Again, if the NHL draft is not going to be it. Well, I, I just think about kind of the the shared memory that the draft can create when everyone in the league is on hand for these things like the the gasp when Detroit picks Moritz Sider or when Montreal actually goes through and picks Yuri Slavkovsky. Uh, was it Dustin Wolf the one year who had like all those people up in the upper bowl for him and he's picked in the seventh round? Like these are moments that you can mention them to like any person in the league and they'll remember because they were in the same room. And I do think it loses something when, when you take the potential for that away. Everyone's just locked in on what they have going on their draft board on their screens, right? Right. And I think now you look at some of these other quote unquote decentralized drafts, you know, where now we're talking about how football, basketball, and baseball run their drafts. And uh, some of them are good TV products and some of them can create these great moments and entertaining moments, even if they're somewhat different. And some of them are very not entertaining and do not have many moments. I think the NHL is hoping to create something like what the football draft is right now. I think obviously that's extremely unrealistic given what a yeah. monster the football draft is right now. Uh, but I, I think what uh, Chris Peters desperately hopes is that this not become the baseball draft. The baseball draft sucks. It is, it is, it is fucking terrible. It is awful on TV. Sorry for swearing kids, but like that, I, I'll be honest. I hate this. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I hate it. I think it sucks. I think the NHL is stupid for doing this. Um, I also think that the teams are being incredibly selfish about this. Um, Understandably so. It's obviously a busy time. But for all the reasons you mentioned, Max, and for all the reasons Corey mentioned, I'm sure for the reasons that Scott's going to mention as well, the draft is one of the things that the NHL does absolutely right. It It is one of their best events. And to say... We are going to strip a lot of the life from it because part of the part of the allure for fans going there, it's 
you know, contact with the, the, the coaches and the, and the GMs. And like, they, like, it's great for us from a media standpoint, but it's also great for the fans. You get to see these people up close and personal. You might go up to, uh, Joe Sackett can say, who are you picking, Joe? And he'll laugh and he'll not say a word to you. But still, you know, you you did that. And you that's part of your, your whole experience. And I I also think, you know, for the players, um, for the teams, there are going to be missed opportunities with this, uh, it, just in terms of logistics, whether it's those last second meetings, whether it's, you know, those in per- face-to-face trade conversations, different things like that, which probably, you know, now can still happen virtually or over the phone or whatever. And, and it won't matter. But the NHL, like to, to everyone's point here, has to find a way to s- kind of keep that festive environment. Um, I just think with a decentralized draft now, you'll OK, all the players are there. And then Gary, we, we see the same thing happen. You know, Gary Bettman or whoever they invite to, to announce the pick and take the picture with the player. I, I mean, I think we're just losing so much from it. So um, and if it does become the baseball draft, then uh, it makes our jobs harder because I think a lot fewer people will care about it. What I find interesting is the two reasons they cited for why they want to do it. I can see the reasons, you know, when I I talked to a lot of NHL people about about this decision and a lot of them did prefer from a pure draft operation standpoint, not all mind you, it was about a 50 50 when I did pull NHL people on what they preferred. Honestly, some did prefer the live in-person draft because it's easier to communicate with other teams for trade purposes. And they just love the experience and all the reasons we just talked about. Uh, but some of them did say it was very hard to plan to make last minute decisions or pivots or talk about trade scenarios when you have to kind of like, you know, hide, you know, hide, you know, your lips when you're talking, there's cameras on you. It's very loud. Teams are right next to you as, and you can't really communicate with your scouts as well. So some of them did really prefer to stay at home, but when the league cited the reasons why, we're making this change again. The league hasn't officially announced it, but we've seen the reasons get reported uh, uh, through various media members. Is that one was a cost reason, which makes sense. You're flying in a bunch of people for for a week, costs a lot of money. And two was the proximity to free agency. The proximity to free agency to me doesn't make any sense because while I understand, I understand it is close to free agency, just because clearly traditions can be broken because they are breaking this tradition. Free agency does not need to be on July 1st. It could be a week later and nothing will change. The NHL offseason is quite long. There are many dead weeks where nothing happens. You could push it back by a couple of days and, and the world won't end uh, for these players and teams other than that they uh, these, uh, these hockey people may not get as many uh, days in their summer cottages, more or less. Uh, and in terms of the cost, while I do respect that argument, I do think it's somewhat... Uh, interesting that on the, you know, after saying that we're not going to do in-person drafts going forward because of how expensive it is to just drop a gigantic a bundle of cash to reserve the sphere uh, seems uh, like an interesting decision to me. Also, I, don't you still have to fly a bunch of people into the city in your, your draft ops room too? Like you, all your international people, you're still flying them somewhere, right? I will say too, on the point of the, the, the challenges of making trades on the draft floor, I do understand the practicalities of that. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is an entertainment product. Yes. And hockey people are incredibly private people. And yeah. one of the great benefits of the draft is that you were put for, for a long time, they've put the entertainment first at, at the expense of the procedure. They're now prioritizing the procedure. 
one of the beauties of it was that it was the only time of the year that we got to see Steve Iserman and Lou Lamorello and people who for the other 364 days of the year give us nothing in terms of relative to the NBA and the way that insider culture works in the NBA and access to information works in the NBA, all of that. This is the one time of the year where fans in the NHL got to see how how the sausage was made. And especially with people like Lamorello and Iserman and, and the very, very private people that run some of these teams. Uh, so I do think there's there's something there's something that's going to feel empty about wh- whatever they do, even if they do it incredibly well. Uh, and then I was discouraged in terms of what it could look like. I was discouraged by the pandemic TV draft yes. that they did. Yes. It was it was one uh, of the it, worst it, it, products that they've ever put on television. And they were a mess in terms of the procedure of it. The procedure of it was terrible and it took way too long and nobody knew what they were doing. So they're, they, they're, they're going to, they're going to have to get a lot sorted. That's, that is a they, great point. That is yeah, a great I, mean, point. I, I, I do hope they learned from their mistakes in those drafts that day one, you can do the back and forth and make the big announcement and, and kind of, and kind of milk those picks if you want to. But the second, if you're going to do uh day two of the draft, which is round two through seven, and you want to have Bill Daly announce every single one of the second round picks. It's just not practical with, you know, 32 teams in different location. What is practical is if you do want to do it that way, because I understand the round two players are different than the round six players and, you know, the higher talent level, more significance into organizations. If you really want to do that way, it needs to be a three-day event, just like how the football draft does it. Otherwise, it basically needs to be... Uh, when teams enter the name into their computers, because that's how they, they draft the players, even though there's an announcement, it, the players are drafted before the announcement happens after they input the, the players in. The second that happens, it just pops up onto a TV screen and then the next team does the same thing. And that's how that needs to roll. Otherwise, it's going to be another eight hour day two and it's really going to drag. Or the baseball draft, which does, uh, you know, draft one and two on the same night and then the rest on day two that is largely, I think they have just kind of like, you know, vague set studio show going while the names scroll. Oh, don't, yeah, don't even, brutal. Don't even say brutal. that. Don't even say that. Max. They had to well, say here's that. The thing. I, <laughs> brutal. That's going to be like, a, like, an, like an eight hour day for us for like two rounds. Well, you just proposed three days. So I just kind of figured one. one three, eight hour day it's day three days. You, you've got an even worse scheduling problem <laughs> in terms of the challenge of the cat. Yeah. Like if they're reluctant and to free agency free, and everything else, yeah. then you add but, a day of work in between for them. And it makes it, it pushes free agency debates back another day. Right. So I don't know. And I do respect the pushback on doing anything the way baseball does it because a baseball draft is the worst. It is absolutely the worst. And I, I think hockey's at risk of that. Um, even, right. if, even as we talk about all three of these teams, you know, whichever way you do it, there's a certain appeal to the football and the basketball drafts in that so much of the pool are players that these fans are already so familiar with. From they know them. Yeah. And they're going to be in point. the league the uh, next year in many yeah, cases. I, and in baseball and hockey, I, it's not the case. This is why I think this could potentially backfire on the league. Cause like they're going to, you know, do this big event in the sphere, for example. And like they're hopeful that this is going to be, you know, it's the first sporting event in the sphere. It's going to be a big deal. But like after Celebrini goes, nobody knows who the hell is other are, are the rest right. of these picks. Uh, you know, we do obviously. Your our listeners do. Fans are going to do. Are, which yeah. are shout our out listeners. to the listeners. What but, up? But 
the people walking through Vegas have no idea who Sam Dickinson is and and who Artem Levshunov is. Uh, and I think that it's I think that's gonna make it a tougher event to sell in the sphere. Uh, but I also think the sphere is very cool, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, how the. And I, I've never been in it; I've only walked by it. But I, I'm hope I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what they do with it. But in terms of that, just a TV product where it is decentralized, and you're literally just watching it to see who's getting picked. Um, I think most sports drafts falter after the fifth or seventh pick in terms of actual fan interest. Uh, but in the NHL draft, like the baseball draft, when you're not talking about immediate impact. Um, if there is no, we have a trade to announce if there is, which there still will be, but it's, yeah. I think it's more interesting when you see, you know, Iserman talking to Lamorello on the floor, when you can, yeah. and to the player in the, in the, in the, coming down, down the, uh, the steps and, and, and going to put his Jersey on. Well, you, I don't know. It, it's, I think it's going to be a much tougher sell as a TV product, opposed to the NFL draft when you draft a quarterback and you know that he's going to be your starting quarterback next season. Yeah. I also say it does cost us what I found to be the single best moment of the 2023 draft, which was Kyle Davidson getting interviewed on the street in Nashville by someone who did not know that he was Kyle Davidson (laughs) and asking him if he thought the lottery was rigged and him answering the question. That was honestly, yeah, I just love like the whole, we got Kyle Davidson's camera presence, just incredible by the way, on that whole, in that whole thing. But, but yeah, but you're right. And like, I just think that there we're losing so much. We're using, losing the uniqueness of the draft and, and it, it bothers me a lot that they went this way. Um, because I, I do think that, as I said, it's something that they do very well. It's something that, Everyone, no one has ever complained about the draft experience. Have you ever heard? Not, not no. even. I mean, I get it. There are some GMs there where it's more difficult. The vast majority of people, maybe there are seven people who didn't like it this way. Like honestly, and and or maybe there's 32, and they're all the owners. But what it is beyond ridiculous to take something you do well and say let's change it because even the second day sucks compared to the first day. And so now you want to make that basically just keep going because, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just think I think it's I'm probably madder than I should be about this, but I I'm really like the solution is about it. It, I feel like the solution is just pushing free agency back because like we're on the second day of the draft, almost all of the teams not only, you know, just leave the stadium, but they leave the city almost immediately after the draft is over. They all jump on a plane, they head home. Go back to you know the, the, some of the scouts will hang around because they don't know where to go, but all the management ties have to leave right away to, to prep for free agency. So I, I do get that tight window and the stress that puts them under to make major decisions. That, um, but I just don't see why we can't just push it back a couple more days uh, and and to preserve what, as everyone here has said, has been a very positively received thing by the NHL where it seems like the only criticism of the event is coming from ownership and the managers. Scott, said, write your okay. senators, Americans, and write your parliamentarians or whatever you call them in Canada. Sorry, Scott, you'll have to fill me in on that. But write, just let's let's get a letter writing campaign going. It's 1957. I, I was just going to say, if there is the positive, how about Montreal into Nashville into Vegas as a send-off? Oof. Man, everyone I, but my liver likes this yeah 
we could have done Nashville every year. I've been like, yep. Um, okay. my, but yeah, minus, you're right. Minus the travels home, though. I think that the, the, the troubles that people had getting out of Nashville <laughs> might have put the final coffin in this whole thing. Oh, I, I got out just fine. America, baby. Uh, but <laughs> but no, but you know what? Like, yeah, last last thing, last point for me on this. And I really do hope that the sphere thing works and that it works so well that it is kind of more evidence that what they're doing is really dumb. Um, I do like I can't wait for Florida ceiling celebrating highlights. I think that's going to be awesome. Uh, seeing a, the giant Artem Levshinov face just kind of take envelop the entire Las Vegas strip is going to be awesome. Like we'll have Cole, Cole Iserman shooting a puck, you know, probably through the Vegas strip somehow. It's going to be so I, I think it'll be a great spectacle. I also think it's going to be a tremendous reminder of what we're losing. And then uh, and I hope that the NHL takes that seriously. Well said. That is going to do it for us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. You can catch more of Chris over at Flow Hockey and his podcast, Talking Hockey Sense. And, of course, you can get Scott and Corey at The Athletic. Follow us on YouTube at youtube.com slash at The Athletic Hockey Show. And from right now to the end of the year, you can gift a one-year subscription to The Athletic for $19.99 or a two-year subscription for $39.99 when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. Give the gift of Corey Promman and Scott Wheeler this holiday season. We'll talk to you soon.